Well, today is week three in our new series, Legacy. And uh, I've said over the last few weeks that we are focusing our thoughts on men and women of faith uh, whose lives have touched ours, even though we might not have met them. We would not have met the people that we've looked at so far. And through their lives, they have left a legacy of faith for us. And uh, it's a faith which has touched our world, a world which has become a better place because of those that we are looking at. Now, as I've been saying the last couple of weeks, this isn't just a history lesson because we're also opening our hearts and opening our minds to what the Bible has to say about the issues that they stood for or against in their day. And as we observe their lives, we need to ask the question, what is the challenge? What is the challenge? Even though they are now dead, what are they still saying to us? In, one, in, in week one, we looked at the life of William Tyndale. William Tyndale was the man who gave us the English Bible, making the Word of God accessible to everyone, from the King of England all the way through down to the, the plowboy, the lowest of the low in society. Then in week two, yes, last week, we reflected on the life of William Carey. And uh, we said that William Carey was the father of modern missions. And we learned of that great legacy that he has left, uh, that challenging us to go out from our places of comfort and security and to take the gospel into foreign lands. Well, this week we are looking at another William. It seems as if uh, two or three hundred years ago everybody was called William. And uh, it's William Wilberforce. And uh, William Wilberforce was only five foot three inches tall. But he was an absolute giant in faith and compassion. He was born in Yorkshire. You won't hold that against him. That was for Joyce. <laughs> he was born in Yorkshire in 1759. He was a contemporary of William Carey, the guy we looked at last week, although I'm not sure if they ever met. But when he was at the age of seven, his father died and he was sent to live in Wimbledon with his aunt and uncle who were staunch evangelicals. Uh, but when William became interested in their faith, his mother brought him back home very quickly. His grandfather threatened, if Billy turns Methodist, he shall not have a sixpence of mine. Not sure what accent that was, but... <laughs> Tell me afterwards if you recognize it. You see, in that age, it was an age when the church was very respectable, but also very ineffective. And the Methodists, led by John and Charles Wesley, were passionate and vibrant about their faith. They were the new kids on the block, and they took apathetic so-called Christian Britain by storm. They were seen to be enthusiasts, a bit OTT, a bit fanatical about their faith to compared with ordinary church folk of the day. So William's mother and grandfather didn't want William getting mixed up with all this kind of stuff. William was uh, academically bright. He completed his education at St. John's College in Cambridge where he met a fellow student by the name of William Pitt. Does that ring any bells for you history bods? He was known as William Pitt the Younger. Uh, in fact, he became Prime Minister at the age of 24. 
Can you imagine that today? His father was a great British statesman, was also known as William Pitt, and he was referred to as William Pitt the Elder. That's right, you, you know this. In order to distinguish him from William Pitt the Younger, his son. I think it probably would have caused less confusion if they called this son Barry <laughs> or Malcolm or something like that, don't you? <laughs> but William Wilberforce himself became a, a member of Parliament at the age of 20. He was a socialite. He was one of the London in crowd. He spent much of his time playing cards and gambling and getting invited to dinner parties and uh, visited often the homes of the aristocracy and the rich. He became a firm favourite because of his charm, his quick wit, and he had a great singing voice. Didn't realise I had so much in common with him, actually, but there we go. <laughs> At the age of 24, he made two trips to the continent with a friend named Isaac Milner, who happened to be one of those awful Methodists. Isaac Milner was an inventor. He was also the president of Queen's College, Cambridge, and a professor of mathematics. Quite bright. And he was the one on this tour of the continent who encouraged William Wilberforce to study the Bible with him. And after the, their times away and of studying the Bible, Wilberforce declared that he now fully believed and then dedicated his life and his fortune to the service of God. He came back to London. William needed to find a church and he found an Anglican church and the vicar of that church was a man by the name of John Newton. Does that name ring a bell? He was the guy who wrote his testimony in song and we've been singing it this morning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And he was a wretch. I, was one, I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind but now I see. And uh, John Newton was a man with a dramatic testimony. He was the son of a sea captain. He was forced to join the Royal Navy. They took him younger in those days. He was aged 11. And after some years in the Royal Navy, he was discharged and he joined Britain's prosperous slave trade. Um, and he was there until he had a spiritual conversion. One day, his ship that he was captaining was off the Donegal coast in Ireland and it nearly sank. That caused him to cry out to God and he had a, a conversion experience which changed the rest of his life. John Newton once declared, only, God, God, only God's amazing grace could and would take a rude, irreverent, slave-trading sailor and transform him into a child of God. And when I read those words, I, I wasn't aware of that quote until this week. When I read those words, I was so aware that they are very much like the words of uh, Paul to the Corinthians when he writes in that great chapter on the resurrection, uh, chapter 15, I am the least of the apostles and do not deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But I am what I am by the grace of God and his grace to me was not without effect. After his conversion, William uh, became very fed up with politics and discouraged by political life and he asked his vicar, John Newton, uh, whether he should leave politics and become a clergyman. And um, I've got the, uh, the response here, which I'm going to put up on screen for you, of John Newton and how he advised uh, William Wilberforce at that time. He says, God has raised you up for the good of the church and the good of the nation. 
Maintain your friendship with Pitt. Continue in Parliament. For who knows that but for such a time as this, God has brought you into public life and has a purpose for you. Again, when I read those words this week, I was uh, reminded of the words of Mordecai to Queen Esther, um, that she had gained that position as queen to probably the most powerful man in the world at the time, King Xerxes, for such a time as this, um, to save the Jewish nation from genocide. And if you have no idea what I've just said in the last two minutes, and you have no idea what I'm talking about with Mordecai and Queen Esther, read the Old Testament book of Esther. It's only 10 chapters. Surprisingly, it doesn't mention God once, but the whole story is about God, about his providence. Sometime later, William Wilberforce wrote in his diary, God Almighty has set before me two great objectives, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of society. Before his conversion, he was a guy who just wasted his time. I suppose we would say someone who goes out and paints the town red, he was living up life to the full. No real purpose. Afterwards, after he had had this conversion experience, everything changed for him. He saw who he was. He saw who God was. He saw what his role in society was to be and was enabled really to look at the whole world with totally different eyes. I'm sure you agree with me when I say Jesus changes everything. Do I get an amen for that? Amen. Yes. Jesus changes everything. You might have experienced that. I certainly have. You know, before coming to faith, I could not ever have imagined that I would be as a passionate about the things that I am passionate about as I, you know, I never thought that that would ever be possible. You know, I thought uh, Christians were just odd people. I'm not going there. No, I'm not going there. I'm, I'm resisting the temptation. No. I really thought that they were strange. What's, what's this all about? Why be passionate about these things? I didn't understand it from the other side, as it were. Didn't understand it at all. But Jesus has changed the trajectory of my life. I see things differently. I see that I have a purpose in my life beyond myself. I have a king that I serve and his purposes in this world. For those of you that know me very well, you know that I'm not the finished article. I'm a long way from it. And yet, he has opened my eyes to see people, softened my heart, to feel compassion, to act justly. And I do what I do. Just as the trajectory of my life has changed, I do the best that I possibly can to change the tra trajectory of other people's lives. And the best way I know that I can do this is by introducing them to Jesus. And that's what Jesus has called me to, and that's what Jesus has called all of you to as well. You see, in this church, we're not into some social gospel, whereby we're attempting to change people's lives through providing uh, better living conditions or by training them to become better versions of their former selves. That is not the gospel that we preach. The gospel that we preach and teach here is 
the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that on the third day he rose again triumphant from the grave. He is seated on the right hand of the Father. He desires to come into our lives by the Holy Spirit. He desires to change us from the inside out. And it is always that way around. It is from the inside, this change of heart, which works itself out in our lives, that we do all the other things that, uh, that I was speaking about. It's from the inside out, not from the outside. Oh, let's tidy ourselves up. Let's get the externals right. Let's start going to church. Let's do this and, and maybe it will change our character. No, it is never that way around. It is the change of heart, the change on the inside, which affects everything. We want to be a blessing to society. We want to have the, a passion to act with righteousness and mercy and fight against injustice and discrimination and stand strong for equality. You see, you can take a pig out of a pig pen and you can wash that pig until it's spotless. And you can take this pig and you can spray it with the best perfume and you can put a pink ribbon around its neck. And you can teach this pig to snort for food. But the moment you turn the pig loose and allow it to become itself again, it will go back to the muddy pigsty and dive right into the slop. Why? Because you've not changed its heart. It's pigness, if you like. I'm not sure if there is such a word. And the gospel starts with the heart. It starts on the inside, which then works out in our lives. Well, in the late 1700s, English traders raided the African coast and captured between 35,000 and 50,000 Africans a year and shipped them across the Atlantic and sold them into slavery in all, in all, 11 million Africans were transported into slavery and about 1.4 million died during the voyage due to inhumane conditions. When William Wilberforce, now a Christian, heard about all this, he became obsessed, passionate, driven to abolish this grotesque injustice of one man treating another as property, something to be owned. He led campaigns, raised awareness, collected names for petitions, interviewed sailors, presented bills in the House of Commons, became an advocate, a voice for the voiceless in society, and it cost him. It really did. It cost him much. He suffered much, often at the hands of those who had most to lose financially if the slave trade were abolished. Vitriolic attacks against him in newspapers, physically assaulted, death threats, he needed to travel at all times with an armed bodyguard. And in present day terms, the slave trade earned Britain the equivalent of the entire British housing market today, or the entire IT industry today. In 1807, in the city of Liverpool alone, 17 million pounds changed hands. We're not talking of now, so a million pounds then was, you know, just... In one city, in one year, 17 million changed hands. 
in the buying and selling of slaves. Slavery was so entrenched in the British economy that very few people thought that anything could be done about it. But to use the motto of William Carey from last week's study, Wilberforce expected great things from God and attempted great things for God. He knew that he served a big God and that nothing, absolutely nothing, was impossible for God. On the 12th of May, 1789, it's the 12th of May today, so this is exactly 230 years ago today, uh, William Wilberforce made his first major speech on the subject of the abolition of slavery in the House of Commons. He spoke for three hours about the appalling conditions that slaves travelled from uh, in, in, in the ships and how morally reprehensible this, uh, this old trade was. He concluded by saying that having heard that all, that all that he had to say, his fellow parliamentarians might choose to look the other way, but they could never again say that they did not know. It was tough being a figurehead in an organisation like that, in a movement like that. It was really tough. tough. There were many times of um, great discouragement, and I'm sure that he felt a little bit like Daniel in the lion's den on occasions. But he had incredible stickability and uh, stamina. But how did he do it? How was he so resilient? Well, he belonged to a, a group of uh, Anglican Christians based in Clapham. They were known, actually, as the Clapham sect. And uh, they, they prayed together, often. And they planned together how they could change public attitudes and parliamentary opinion. And they, as a group, they supported him and stood with him and prayed with him. And they really lived out what St. Augustine once said. Pray as if the entire outcome depends on God and work as if the entire outcome depends on you. It's a great saying that, isn't it? I tell you what, that is something for us today as well. Pray as if the entire outcome depends on God and work as if the entire outcome depends on you. Wow. From 1791, a bill was presented almost every year in Parliament to abolish the slave trade and was outvoted 11 times. You think Brexit's bad? <laughs> 11 times. On one occasion by just four votes. And the reason, some of the supporters of, the, of, of abolition had gone to see a new opera that evening. That's not the whole story, by the way. They had been given tickets for this new opera by opponents of the bill. So they knew what they were doing. On the 23rd of February, 1807, at four o'clock in the morning, the House of Commons finally passed a bill to abolish the slave trade by 283 votes to 16. And William wept with joy. The capturing, transporting and selling enslaved Africans was now illegal in Britain. But after a further battle, he needed to fight for this to become law in the British colonies, in the West Indies. And after another 26 years of political infighting, this was achieved in 1833. They also agreed to give the slave owners 20 million pounds uh, compensation for their loss. Well, the good news that this had finally happened 
was uh, brought to William, who was now on his deathbed. And he said, Thank God that I should have lived to witness this day in England, when England is willing to give 20 million sterling in the abolition of slavery. He died just three days later. What an amazing legacy, don't you think? He was a man who was driven by his Christian faith and the principle that all human beings are made in the image of God. It says in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. You've heard me say probably many times before, you won't know who you are until you know whose you are. You've heard me say that, haven't you? And our worth is connected to our Creator. And if God is of great and immeasurable worth, then human beings made in His image must also be of great value. Uh, it was C.S. Lewis uh, in his book, The Weight of Glory, said, there are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. I quite like that saying. Very clever, very wise, very true. There are no ordinary people. The only people that there are are those who have been made in God's image. That includes all of us, by the way. It includes everybody that we've ever met. Which makes every human being loved, valued, precious, and extraordinary. And when we recognise all human beings have been created in God's image, I believe that we will look differently at every person that we meet. We will treat everyone with respect and with dignity. We might be different in the colour of our skin or in our nationality or our ethnicity, in our religion, in our gender, in our sexual orientation, in our worldview, in our politics. But because we recognise that they also are made in the image of God, we will show them dignity and respect and compassion and kindness and mercy and justice. Are you with me on this? See, recognising this truth, this true fact of theology that drove William Wilberforce, that we are made in the image of God, was a driving force for him. Changes everything. And in Christ, as Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is not male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, I've enjoyed myself this week because I've been uh, looking at this whole story of William Wilberforce and I've been so inspired. He was an amazing man. But what is our challenge? What's our challenge? What's our take home, if you like, today. And, um, you know, it's, it's good filling our heads with uh, good history, isn't it? You know, and to learn what has happened in the past and to be inspired by it and so forth. But we're not in a history lesson this morning. This isn't about history alone. 
So what are, what are our challenges? What would God have us know today? Four things. Number one, Jesus changes everything. I think you believe that, don't you? William Wilberforce's life was an extraordinary example of that truth. William was changed from being a man who was idle, a pleasure seeker, a hedonist, to become a man with real purpose, someone who changed the course of history. And that's what Jesus does. Praise his name. He takes hopeless cases and he turns them into people who will bring hope into the world. Maybe you've said of yourself this morning, I don't have any real sense of purpose in my life. I'm not sure my life will ever amount to anything significant. You might have said that of yourself. But I just want to tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that we have not only been created by God, we have been created for God. But until we open that door of our hearts and allow God in, properly allow God in, not allow God in and for him to sit in the boot or in the back seat or in the, the passenger seat, but to sit in the driving seat of our lives, I don't believe that we will ever experience the joy of seeing him at work in our lives and using us to bless others and to bring honour to his name. You see, becoming a Christian is always on Jesus' terms and not on ours. But so often we want to put in the conditions. I will follow you, Lord, but first let me fill in the blanks yourself. And then we wonder why we do not see God at work in our lives. There's your answer. That's your answer. Jesus' call is to deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily to follow him. Jesus on another occasion said, as we lose our lives, we will gain them. And Wilberforce did that. He trusted in Jesus. He, he dedicated the rest of his life and fortune to God. And from there on, there was no turning back. Never attempted to live his life for God in his own terms and conditions. And I want to say to you this morning that if you want to live a life of real purpose, I would encourage you to open the door of your heart wide, not just slightly ajar. Open it wide. Invite Jesus in. Not just as a comfort blanket in those times when they get hard. Not just as an insurance policy so that one day you'll be admitted into heaven. But to invite him in as Lord and as master, don't settle for anything less. Secondly, and this, would, this could have gone down in yesterday's uh, ladies' convention. Bloom where you're planted. You see, William at one point wanted to take the easy option. Life of politics was too hard for him and his wise vicar, John Newton, said to him, no, don't do that. Stay where you are. And it wasn't going to be easy for him. He knew he was going to experience opposition. Um, people with Christian views saying unpopular things, as uh, Wilberforce did, were certainly viewed with suspicion. They weren't accepted well in Parliament in the late 1700s any more than they accepted in Parliament today. We've seen that. And the lesson here is bloom where you're planted. You see, it might not be an easy place. 
where you are planted. But don't again just think of serving God in the context of four walls of a church building. I think God is far bigger than that. He has called us to serve him wherever he has placed us. And as we do, we bring the hope and the light of Christ. Thirdly, persevere with your passion. In other words, keep on keeping on. I just wonder how many times William Wilberforce was tempted to give everything up, to pack it in. Life was too hard to surrender this great dream that he had because people were mean to him and calling him names. So where did he get his strength from? Well, as we mentioned a moment ago, he walked with God and he walked with other Christians on that journey. And I would say to you as well, if you're a person who has a passion to do something for Jesus in this world, you need to take hold of that too. You need to walk with God. You need to cultivate that relationship with him. Jesus said, if you remain in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we need to keep that relationship and cultivate that relationship with Jesus. It's out of the fullness of our hearts, our mouths will speak. It's out of the fullness of our hearts that we will reach out to others. But also, we can't do it alone. We need to walk with others of a like mind. And that is why we do church. It's not because you'll be in the pastor's black book if you, if, if you miss. It's not about that at all. And you know what? I don't think Sunday morning is enough. It's great on a Sunday morning. Don't get me wrong. I think it's wonderful being here. The music and the, the sense of together of worshipping God and having teaching maybe. <laughs> If Dan's preaching, yes. But it's on, it's, it, 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 it's on the other occasions, the times of greater intimacy when we let down the guard, when we start talking, when we get to know other people, when we start praying with others in our life groups or other groups in the week. And I do encourage you, if you're not a part of that, this is a, a means of God's grace for you. Talk to me about it. You know, we get beaten down, don't we, by life circumstances. Stuff happens. Life can be wearing. We can't do this on our own. We need encouragement. We need support. We need prayer. And sometimes, sometimes we need the perspective and the wisdom of other people around us too. And finally, never underestimate what God can do through you. We've seen this, haven't we, in the last uh, three weeks that God can take a person who is committed to him and his kingdom's cause and use that person as an agent of change in society. Wilberforce slayed that dragon of 18th century slave trade. But there are still many dragons still breathing out fire in their day, including a morphed 21st century version of the slave trade. And uh, many of you know, I'm sure, that modern slavery, very often linked with human trafficking, is where a person is, is forced into some work or even into prostitution against their will. And that trade in our world is alive and kicking. There were 11 million Africans enslaved in the 18th century. Today, there are 25 million 
estimated 25 million in forced labour who are being sexually exploited or even being sold that their body organs can be harvested against their will, including 8.4 million children. Each year, $150 billion is made from forced labour. That's the day. Modern day slavery. But thank God, we also have our modern day William Wilberforces. In the UK, the fight is being led by some great Christian organisations like Hope for Justice and Stop the Traffic and others. But as followers of Christ, we also have a part to play in society, in speaking out against injustice, in making a stand against all forms of discrimination, and making a stand for the uniqueness and the sanctity of life, including life in the womb. And we do this essentially because we are followers of Jesus. Yes, that is why we do this. We are followers of Jesus. And just like William Wilberforce, we have been called for such a time as this. It is our time. It is our generation. It was said of King David that he served the purpose of God in his own generation. Well, forgive me stating the obvious here. When else could he have done it? He couldn't have served the purpose of God in our generation or a generation before he was born. He had to serve the purpose of God in his own generation. And we too, this is our time, this is our world that we have responsibility for. So what does the Lord require of us when we see injustice, inequality, discrimination? And the answer is found in that great verse in Micah 6, 8. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before our God. And this week as we go into the world, I pray that we will bring Christ's hope where there is hopelessness. That we will bring the light of Christ where there is darkness. That we will bring his joy where there is sadness. That we bring justice for the oppressed and God's grace to the marginalised. And to use every platform that is available, that we will be a voice for the voiceless. Would you stand with me, please? Lord, we stand in awe of the way that you can take a life and use it as an agent of your grace in this world. I pray, Lord, that we will go from here today and we will not only say that William Wilberforce was a great man, but we will be inspired to become your agents of hope and light in our world. And in doing so, Lord, that we might bring honour to your name. Amen.